Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast. I am Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing and assistance to each other. I aim to have conversations to expand your consciousness, help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matter, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. My guest today is the natural scientist, academic, and mediumship researcher, Dr. Oliver Lazar, who spoke with me from his home in Dusseldorf, Germany. I first became aware of Oliver's work on mediumship through a YouTube video that has since gone viral in German, by which I mean it has had over a million views. That video now also exists with English subtitles, and you can find a link in the episode description. And I'm also very happy to be able to make this small contribution to spreading his work in English. I then got Oliver's book, currently only available in German, the title of which I translate as Beyond Matter, a scientist's moving experiences with the spiritual world and his afterlife research. Oliver's personal experiences and research into mediumistic communication are indeed moving and scientific at the same time. This is a great combination, and so I was delighted that he agreed to come and speak with me for this episode. The focus of our conversation is mediumship, the kind of solid evidence it can furnish but also some of its pitfalls and limitations. But Oliver's book is much broader than that, as he really tackles the materialistic paradigm from a purely scientifically rational angle as well. So we also look at some complex issues undermining the materialistic argument that consciousness could have started from matter, or that life as we know it is a result of biological evolution only. If you want to find out more about Oliver's work or participate in the mediumship study that he is ongoingly coordinating, you can go to his website www.oliver-lazar.com. Link in the description. I really enjoyed my conversation with Oliver and I hope you do too. So Oliver, um First of all, welcome, and uh, very happy to have you to discuss your really fascinating work. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and I'd like to start off with uh, kind of a background question, and that is that essentially how you went from being an academic with really no interest in matters of spirituality, I think you would describe yourself as a materialistic kind of person, to now dedicating the last several years of your life to the study of mediumship. You know, tell us the story behind that and, and how that all came to be. Okay, Kim. And it is certainly not come for a natural scientist to, to suddenly become interested in afterlife context. I don't think this is the usual plan for a scientist. And there was some kind of a spiritual awakening for me. And I always call it, it was as if someone kicked my spiritual butt. That's what I always say. And, and I think uh, such a drastic experience is 
obviously always necessary before a normal scientist is is ready to open to open up to the spiritual world. And my story is is quite a complex story. It's not just a one-time experience. It's just a complex story with, with several steps. And it has to do with the accidental death of a girl who seemed to be a stranger to me. <laughs> Only seemed. This is just a small sneak peek, but uh, I think first things first. And yeah, for 43 years of my life, I have been living in a materialistic worldview. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm having a PhD in the natural sciences of medicine. And for more than 10 years, I've been working as a professor for computer science here in Düsseldorf in, in Germany. And I'm teaching algorithms, computer programming languages, data structures, and, and things like that. But uh, especially during my medical studies, I had a lot to do with natural sciences, really wonderful sciences. I love biology, chemistry, biochemistry, physics, physiology, and, and, and all those um, wonderful sciences. And everything that I was taught at school and at, and at uh, university was that everything is based upon matter. That's what they told me. So everything is based upon matter or, or material processes. And interestingly, they said, it's not only our body. They said everything. They said even our love, our emotions, our sense of moral, everything is based upon matter. And I was totally convinced that this knowledge is assured because all this knowledge was collected uh, by, by PhD professors and they used uh, scientific methodologies. So why should I question this? I, I did not. I was pretty sure all of this is absolutely true. But on, on, the other, on the other hand, there was also spirituality, but spirituality never really was a topic for me in my life. But, and I think this is very important, Kim, I never rejected spirituality. And I like to emphasize this because there are a lot of scientists who really actively fight against spirituality and they even organize themselves in skeptics associations and their job is to yeah to reveal all the fraudsters or, or the fake mediums so uh, that's what they do but that was not me absolutely not i mean did, did you, um, of have, course, did there you are... have much spirituality in your life, Oliver? Were there people in your life that were religious or in other ways kind of spiritual, you know, friends, no, no. family? Um, my, own, my own family, my own family um, was not religious and there was no spirituality, but my wife always was interested in, in this topic and, and she read a lot of books about this topic and um, I never did. <laughs> but I've, I also found it very interesting. And sometimes when you're watching the TV and, and you're, you're browsing the TV and there's a show about reincarnation or near-death experiences, I always found it very interesting. But when the show was over, I was not thinking about it any longer. So I was interested in other topics and that's it. So it was interesting, but it was not that important for me that I have to think about my worldview. Yeah. Um, but my wife, as I already said, she really was very interested in that topic. And she was a great help as I have changed my worldview. Okay. Of course, there are fraudsters and there are fake mediums, but there are also very talented and repute reputable providers in this field of spirituality. But I think it is not always easy to recognize them. So I, I am different and I was different. 
And I think a good scientist should always be open to good arguments, no matter where, where these arguments come from. Um, but I said, as I said before, uh, spirituality never really was a topic for me in my life um, until this 9th of October 2017, because on that day something happened that completely turned my life upside down. And it was not just the one-time experience, it was the starting point of, of a new episode in my life. And I was driving my then 13-year-old daughter to school, and on our way to school, we we witnessed a fatal car accident. And there was this huge concrete mixer truck turning right. And I think due to a blind spot, the driver didn't see a girl riding on her bicycle. And she was on her way to school and the truck ran over her. And we arrived there maybe just a few seconds or minutes after the accident. And the girl's name was Joma, which is a short form for Johanna Maria. But everybody called her Joma, and she was one of my daughter's classmates. And she died as a result of the accident. And she died in the afternoon. The moment I found out that Joma was dead, and I found out in, in the afternoon, I felt such a deep grief that I have never felt before in my life. And it was a grief that yeah, really put the ground out from under my feet. And it just felt like as if my own daughter had died. And I would say, okay, when, when you now might say, Oliver, that is a natural re reaction. This is a usual reaction. This is usual empathy. I, I would agree to a certain point. But what I felt, Kim, that went far, far beyond that because my own family didn't recognize me anymore. And, and I, I think I really the thing is, uh, Oliver, I think you explain in your book that you didn't actually know uh, Yuma personally. Uh, that's right, right, absolutely. She was a complete stranger to me. Yes. And this is what was really weird for me because I, I really became depressed. I became silent. I have withdrawn. And it really felt very weird because I didn't know that girl at all. And although she was a complete stranger to me, I felt an incredibly deep connection with her and I couldn't explain it to myself why it is like this. And then comes my spiritual awakening. An indescribable event that, that was the starting point of the whole chain of incredible experiences. It was about three or four weeks after the accident and I sat on my sofa here in my office And I really was very, very sad. And I just sat down on my sofa and I closed my eyes and I reflected the whole situation. I, I was thinking of the accident. I was thinking of Joma, of her parents. And then it happened. And I can hardly find words to describe my experience because there are no words in the world. And you could choose whatever language you would like. There, there are no words to, to come even close to describing what I felt at that moment. And it all started with some kind of an inner vibration. And I had goosebumps only on the left side of my body. And these goosebumps, they were running up and down in waves, up and down in waves. It, it started in my hair and ran down um, uh, my back, down to the, my feet and up and down and... Yeah, I never felt something like that in my life before. And then I was flooded with yeah, an infinite love. I, I, I don't know what word I could use. Maybe it's a divine love or something like that. I have uh, three children. 
I have three daughters, and I would say that the biggest love that you can feel here on Earth as a human being, that is the love that you can feel for your own children. But the kind of love that I felt at that moment was different. It was far, far bigger than that. It was infinite, unconditional, indescribable. And I also perceived light. I mean, my, my eyes were, were closed, but I perceived light, a pleasant light, as if this light would shine out of every single cell of, of my body and as if the whole universe was shining. And, my, uh, and I, had, I had tears from joy running down my face and I didn't understand what was happening there because on the one side there was this, this deep grief and suddenly this infinite love. It was some kind of roller coaster ride of, of emotions. But I... But I need not, or, or I didn't need to question it because it came to me in such a realness, in, in such a pithiness, and not for a second did I doubt this experience. You know, it, it was so real, Kim, as if you would touch me or hit me or, or pull my hair, so real. And in this moment, for me, it was absolutely clear to me that my life would change. So somebody has opened the door to spirituality and I saw my new path. And I have been a materialistic scientist, but at that moment, there was no doubt. It was absolutely clear that this was a life-changing moment. But of course, I had a lot of question marks in my head because I didn't know exactly what it was. I mean, by now, I know what it was. It, it was Joma. I had contact uh, to her spirit or to her consciousness or to her soul, whatever you want to call it. But at that moment, I didn't know what it was. I just thought maybe this was God or a, or a spirit guide. Um, my wife read books about spirit guides, so I knew what a spirit guide is. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, this was so huge. Maybe it was my spirit guide. But by now I know it was Joma because this is a very specific pattern. By now um, I can distinguish between uh, several patterns when the soul is approaching me. For example, Joma is always on my left side and she's touching uh, my, my cheeks and it starts to vibrate. And then I know, okay, this is the pattern that belongs to Joma. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, when I think of my grandfather, somehow I also have a deep connection to my grandfather, not as um, he was still alive, but somehow now uh, when he is yeah, a soul or a spirit, uh, then this pattern is different. So he's only on the right side of my body. Okay, so I can distinguish between those. And that, that's because you've, I mean, you probably talk about that later, but you've done some mediumship training yourself, haven't you, since, since then? Right. And learned that's these, true. Learned these things. But, but I'm not a good medium. I, I would say I have taken the first steps into mediumship, but I would not work as a medium because um, I'm not that talented, I would say. Mm. But I think these experiences were very important to increase my belief in all this. Yes. And, and I, this just, I, just was... to, I just want to, uh, this, this is more for the benefit of, of, of people listening. Um, the, the experience you mentioned um, uh, reminds me so much of an experience that uh, another guest of mine shared, Frederico Fagin, and I encourage people to go back and listen to that if you haven't listened to that episode. Uh, that experience of love that okay. you talk about and that that overcoming you and also that energy flowing through you, 
he described almost identically um, what you were describing. Mm -hmm. uh, in his case, you know, other context, other situation. But I feel there is a real value in 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 realizing how you know the universality of this experience that different individuals have and try to convey, and because it says something about our humanity, doesn't it? It says something about us as um, as more than a more than a physical being. Yes, absolutely. And there are a lot of people. I mean, millions of people who report of their um, near-death experiences and they report of very similar things i i think yes and i as i already said i i had a lot of questions and that's where i found my first answers in reading books where people report of their near-death experiences that's where i found out oh i am obviously not the only person who has perceived such kind of emotions or, or love or, or perceived light Okay, so I needed more answers because I am a scientist. And what did I do? I can I, can I ask you? Did you share the experience? Did you did you go and tell talk your wife about it? Were you a bit scared of it initially, or or? Um... I I was talking um, about this with my wife, yes. and she understood it. But uh, my my whole family also was um, very skeptical. Skeptical. Skeptical about the whole situation because I suddenly felt such an infinite love for a strange girl, or I had emotions for a, a strange family, and they didn't understand it because uh, my job as uh, a husband and a father is to love my own family. But suddenly there was this huge love for another family and, and another child, and they didn't really quite understand it. And at the beginning, I did not talk about this with my own children. I just talked about um, uh, this topic uh, with my wife. And she somehow understood it, but she was also jealous at, at the first few months, I think. By now, it is different. She's uh, a great support for me. Okay, so I needed more answers. And what did I do? I booked an appointment uh, with a medium. I, I booked an appointment for an aura reading. So I really didn't want to have an aura reading, but it was the only chance for me to book an appointment. And the idea was to exchange a little bit in conversation with this medium, because I wanted to know what exactly it was, what I have felt. And so four months after the accident, I sat in the medium's office for that aura reading, and she didn't know anything about me except my phone number and, and my first name, and, and that's it. She started with the aura reading, but the aura reading, yeah, more or less did not take place at all because she interrupted after five minutes, and she said to me, Oliver, um, I'm sorry, but I can't see anything. There's nothing more that I can tell you. And at first, I really was disappointed. I was disappointed about it, but somehow I also was happy about it curious, uh, funny situation somehow, because my heart obviously was also reaching out for something else. I just didn't know exactly what it was. But then the medium said, Oliver, now I'm opening for the spiritual world. So she had some kind of an on-off switch for the spiritual world. And yeah, suddenly this session then developed into something like an afterlife contact. Because the medium said to me, Oliver, I can see a girl who is showing me that she died in a bicycle accident. Do you understand this? 
And I, I was happy. I was smiling. I said, oh, of course, I can. But I, I just thought to myself, how could this be? I mean, I am a stranger to Joma. I am not entitled to any afterlife contact with her. And suddenly she's there. And it felt so good. And then I knew that I obviously came exactly there for this reason. And the girl provided, uh, no, the, the girl proved, proved herself as well as she could. Mm. I mean, I didn't know much about her. And the medium described her outward appearances, uh, the color of her hair, her size and everything. Everything was correct. And then the medium said um, that she sees Joma riding a horse. And I knew that Joma was a passionate horse rider. That's just one thing that I really knew about her. And I confirmed it. And for me, this was a wonderful proof. But then and now comes the most important point here, because this is the most important building block for my IRIAM study um, about afterlife contacts by mediumship. Because the medium said to me, now the girl is showing me two number ones. And she emphasized that it was not an 11. So there were definitely two number ones. And I couldn't do anything with this information. And I you know, checked her date of birth. I, I checked her phone number, zip code and everything. But yeah, nothing really matched. And I said to the medium, um, I don't know what this could mean. And she said, um, Oliver, no worries. This happens quite a lot. And usually things like that clear up afterwards. That's what she said. And you know what? Uh, she was right. Because um, a few weeks or a few days after the sitting, I, I went to Joma's parents and I asked them about the two number ones. And, and can I just, the mother can I just, said, can I just check there with yeah. you? How did you approach her parents? Because you hadn't met them before, right? You didn't know them. Right. How did you go, hey, I, um, I have a <laughs> feeling that your daughter's hanging around me and I went to a medium. Like, how, did that, how did that come up? Uh, some kind of, yeah. <laughs> it really was very, very difficult for me. And um, yeah, there were st strangers, strangers to me. And I, I just were, were calling them and I asked them if I can come by. And when we first met, I didn't talk about that I had contact to their daughter because I was not pretty sure if it really was true. But uh, I just wanted to get to know them. This was some kind of a first contact. And after that first contact, I went to uh, the first medium. And, and after three weeks, I visited a second medium. And after that, I met uh, their parents uh, for a second time. And that's where I told them that I was at a medium. Uh, uh, I booked an appointment with a medium and um, that I just was there for an hour reading. But suddenly, uh, Joma appeared. That's what I have told them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think they were atheists, so they were not religious and they were atheists and they live in a materialistic worldview. So it is really difficult to knock at their door and say, hi, here I am. You don't know me, but here I have a message from Joma for you. Mm. I think you can't do it like that. So you have to be really very careful. And I just uh, gave out the information step by step. That's how it was. But it was really difficult for me, even, even for me. And it was Joma who gave me the message. Uh, um, so the second medium gave me the message that I should go visit her parents. So she wanted me to go to their parents. I wouldn't have gone to their parents on my own. It was right. just because Joma has transmitted that message. 
Yeah, okay. Okay. So we talked about the, the two number ones and the horse riding. And I, I visited uh, the parents. I asked her mother. She didn't know what it could mean either. And first, at first, I was disappointed. But when I told her about Joma showing herself riding a horse just before that, it changed the situation because Joma's mother looked at me in amazement. And I could see it in her eyes that, the, that she really was very surprised. And she said, hey, now I understand this. Because shortly before her accident, Joma won first place twice in an equestrian tournament. And Kim, I can't tell you how powerful this moment was. This was utterly amazing because, yeah, yeah, what was so special about this message with the two number ones? Well, there was some information that neither the medium nor I knew. So where should this highly specific piece of information have come from? And from my point of view, it is obvious. And I think it is the only permissible conclusion that it came from Joma and her consciousness is apparently still there. And this kind of evidence is the most important building block in our Arium study, which is the world's largest study on afterlife contacts uh, by a mediumship. That is uh, messages with unknown information that have to be verified afterwards by research. For example, um, by asking uh, relatives or you read in your documents or you're watching photos. And then, then you find out afterwards, hey, the message was true. So this is the most important, important point um, in our Arium study. Yeah, that, that alone case, was... Uh, and I have to say, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of information. It's, I think I can imagine people will say, oh, well, people, you know, you're interpreting things into information afterwards to make it fit, Right. But that mm -hmm. doesn't, it just doesn't hold a lot of strength. It would seem to me to be very hard to make that argument in a case like this with that kind of data that you describe. You know, it's too specific. Um, yeah, too and unique. this is just the first example, right? This is just one mm. case. And by now we have 127 documented and proved cases like this. And I don't think that you can say this is something like an open pattern, um, like uh, one and one, this could mean everything. But I don't think so, because it, it fits well together here, the whole story. It is horse riding, and right after that, there was this one and, this, and, and the other number one. Yeah. And I think it was very intelligent. Uh, so what did Joma do? She, she obviously knew that I would go to her parents and that only her mother uh, could verify this information. So it was somehow a gift or, or present for her mother, this information, because for her mother, it was a wonderful proof, I think. Yes, it would have been okay. very, I was, thinking, I was thinking that when you were telling that story, it would have been, you know, for an atheist person, someone who wasn't believing, but who probably really wants to know her daughter as well, this would have been a really valuable um, and precious moment to have that information. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but that alone was very overwhelming. But the medium still had another message for me, a very important one. She said that I had once been Joma's father in a previous life. And in that previous life, I had also to witness her untimely death. That's what she said. And at that moment, I didn't doubt anything because I just felt... I just felt it and it felt absolutely right because suddenly 
all my emotions, the grief, the infinite love, all of this made, made sense to me. Mm -hmm. So the sitting really was very impressive. And I was very happy about this information, but I still was a skeptic scientist and I remained a skeptic scientist. So this first sitting was really overwhelming, but it did not convince me 100%. I needed more evidence. And I was just thinking, so supposedly there was this previous life where I was the father of that girl. I needed to find out more. And there was this seminar here in my hometown in Essen um, about three weeks later. And the seminar was held by a medium. Her name is Bettina Suvirode. She is uh, a very well-known medium here in Europe. And the topic of the seminar was uh, reincarnation. And so I booked the seminar. Yeah, there were about 25 people who participated in the seminar. And there was yeah, this introduction round. I was the last one in line. I sat direct next to Bettina. And after I just said my name and I, I said that I had witnessed the accidental death of one of my daughter's classmates, Bettina already interrupted me. And she said to me, yes, Oliver, I know. And the girl stands right behind you. I can see her blonde hair. Yeah, that was true. And she said to me, um, Oliver, you once were her father in a previous life, and you also had to experience her early death. But you shall not experience that again in this life. That's what she said to me. And I looked at her in amazement because I couldn't believe it. I was shaking my head. I was speechless because now the second woman, a complete stranger to me, tells me exactly the same highly specific story about my previous life. And I can assure that the two mediums do not know each other. I can say this with certainty. I know Bettina by now very well. And if the two mediums had told me that I once was Joma's father in a previous life, and that's it, I would say, okay, this could have been explained by association, um, according to the motto, well, let's tell him that he once was uh, the girl's father, and um, yeah, then he's happy. Yeah. But it was different. Both mediums said independently of each other that I also had to experience the death of my daughter in the previous life. And I think this really is a very specific piece of information. And Bettina continued. So that was not all. She, she could tell unbelievable details about the accident. For example, that it was a truck. I didn't tell her that it was a truck, but she knew it was a truck. And she could tell me the color of the truck. And she said that Joma didn't die at that place. She died in the afternoon in the hospital. And she could tell me the reason exactly why she died. So what uh, was her cause of death? And I... I had to ask um, Joma's parents about all these precise descriptions. And I would say about 90% of the messages transmitted were correct. And you can't explain it from our materialistic worldview, what has happened there. And I think this can't be ignored. So I, I could not ignore this. And such authentic messages from the beyond are so comforting. This all was so comforting for me. And this made me so happy. And I met many other morning people, especially parents who have lost their child. And when you then experience that these inconsolably suffering people can suddenly smile again and they experience yeah, healing, it's, it's really healing. Then I think this is one of the most beautiful experiences in my life. 
And exactly this consolation motivated me to start my research in afterlife context. This is my motivation. Because I think there are so many morning people in the world who are stuck in a materialistic worldview. But when I as, I, as a scientist, can show them, hey, here we have scientific evidence for the survival of our consciousness. Maybe I can free them from their grief. So this, that's the idea, and, and this is my motivation. Yeah, and this is my, my story, <laughs> why I began with my research in afterlife context. Yeah, thank you. And I, 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 you know, I really want to um, explore a lot more about, about your actual research process and how you went about and so on. But um, before I do that, I, I did want to ask a couple of other things about your book because, because I'd, you know, I'd heard you tell this story and I understood your passion for, for bringing mediumship to, to a, I guess, a greater public recognition of the scientific merits of mediumship. I was expecting your book to essentially focus on on that, right? And um, mm -hmm. and so I was I was quite surprised when I discovered that you spend really extensive um, chapters on uh, much more sort of foundational things, I suppose, like uh, critiquing our conventional understanding of matter, and mm -hmm. in particular, the idea that consciousness could somehow have been created out of matter as the process of evolution. And the whole the whole theory of evolution. So, uh, yeah, I'm curious, uh, you know, what it is that made you focus on on those topics to the extent that you did. Um, which, just to give uh, uh, people a, a bit of context, I think your your chapter on evolution probably takes up it alone um, more than a third of the book. I think I'm not quite sure, but it's quite a large. It's a it's a very large um, yeah. chapter. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I'm curious why you took that approach, and and then also maybe you could talk a bit about what your key critique of the theory of evolution is. Yes, so I, I can. This this is true. This is the largest part of my book, interestingly, <laughs> and I think this is really a very good question, and it's a very important topic because I think it is not only important to show the evidence for a spiritual world. But it is equally important to show that the existing sciences are very questionable in many parts. If I want to convince a skeptical person, I mean, I'm not a missionary, but my goal is to convince a skeptic person who is in a deep grief and who is open for spirituality. And, and the skeptical person is open um, for, for uh, spiritual studies, for example. And... If you want to convince such a skeptical person, I don't think it is enough to show that there is evidence for the survival of our consciousness after physical death. These arguments alone are not strong enough to convince a skeptic person. People are too entrenched in this materialistic paradigm. The materialistic worldview is yeah, already taught in our schools and our universities as a matter of course. And this is accepted by our society without questioning it. So why should we question it, right? Why? Mm. Because PhD professors have investigated it over decades or even centuries, and they used scientific methodology. So why and, should one question it? And, and you could argue, which I think people do, right? People who are uh, strongly uh, in favor of materialistic paradigm would say that um, across the history of humanity, we were subject to all kinds of 
people might say superstitions, right, that were holding us back. And then science and materialism came. And now our life is much better because of all the things <laughs> that we've been able to accomplish, right? That would be, I think, the argument um, that people make. Okay. Um Kim, ich habe das jetzt gerade nicht alles verstanden, äh, was du gefragt hast, aber das jetzt. Okay, but I think we do not talk about religion here, because what I do is science as well. And I lay a lot of arguments on the table, and I think this is the most important point. So it's not just about belief. I, I am presenting arguments. And when you find out in the end, okay, there are a lot of things that need to be questioned. Um, what other reasons could there be for our existence? And I think this is an important point when we start to think about exactly who we are. So I think this is also some kind of peace research. So when you, when you start to think about yourself, who am I? Where do I come from? Um, is the consciousness that survives, and I have scientifically proven that my consciousness survives. I think this is uh, not only uh, a science for afterlife, context is also a science um, for peace, and I think this is more important than ever currently. Mm. Yeah, I love that perspective. The, the, the connecting it to peace is a... Um, uh, Maybe can you expand a little bit about how this research fosters peace or is, has potential to, to, to create peace? Okay, maybe I'd like to answer this question with a quote. Um, a quote of Hans-Peter Dürer, who is a German scientist. He's a renowned quantum physicist and a former director of the Max Planck Institute for Physics in Munich. And he's a peace researcher. And he is also a longtime companion of the German physicist and Nobel Prize winner, Werner Heisenberg. And here is his quote. He said, when you, when you try to explain love, you are destroying something. For the moment you think you have understood love, you have destroyed it. And I think we will never discover a physiological reason for love. It is neither brain activity nor an endocrinological effect. However, exploring love as a process brings us closer to our true self. We, we will realize that love can't die and it must have a higher, perhaps even a divine origin. So I think love research or spiritual research is also peace research and the key to a peaceful coexistence in this world. It provides the certainty that we must and may answer for our deeds, positive and negative, even beyond death. So love research will show how much everything is connected with everything and that not only love, but also suffering here on earth is, is based on, on a greater plan to make our souls grow. And I think this is, in the end, this, this is the goal that um, we help our souls to grow. So it's kind of a, a spiritual evolution rather than a physical evolution. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so, okay. This, um, 
Yeah, I was going to go back to the the the, the evolution, the theory of evolution. Right, um, right. For now, talking about okay, not the spiritual um, evolution, I, but the physical evolution. And um, I, I would like to, if you're happy to talk about that a little bit, I would like to just um, preface that conversation with just um, noting that when I was reading that chapter, uh, I found it really interesting how. Uh, ingrained and uh, uh the theory of evolution is in in me right in my psyche through my education uh including as an anthropologist studying anthropology we had a you know i, I didn't i did social anthropology but we still had a whole um unit on on the evolution of, of um, humanity um and generally the evolution of species and all that um and uh, what was interesting is that the what what's often held against the conventional theory of evolution is creationism in the kind of christian fundamentalist context which is very absurd right which has timelines that don't make mm -hmm. any sense um which ignores all kinds of <clears throat> archaeological data and it just makes a mockery of of it so to have to have a so it was interesting because you 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 challenge the logic and the coherence of the data for evolution, um, you know, very strongly and I think very very well. But I noticed how I have all these resistances in me to be open even to that process. So I thought that was a very interesting thing yeah. how how strong that is in our in our culture now. Yeah. Okay. May, maybe I I can give you a short introduction before I can tell you. Um, what my key cr critique of the theory of evolution is so that um, the listeners get an idea of what we are talking about here. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think um, before, before a skeptic person is willing to question their own worldview, because this is what we do here when we question evolution, you I think you have to shake it. Maybe you even have to bring it crashing down because only then will people be willing to accept other realities. And that is why I want to show all the misunderstandings of the natural sciences. And particularly, in particular, I have been passionately and very intensively investigating a biogenesis. So how did life arise on earth? Evolution, as you have already mentioned, and very important, the origin of information. And there are so many topics that are not at all scientifically proven. For example, let's talk about the formation of amino acids in homochiral form in the primordial soup and their concatenation into polypeptides or proteins or the emergence of species through mutation and selection. I mean, we are talking about amino acids that should concatenate in water. But what happens when you concatenate two amino acids? They produce water. So there is water in water. And due to a um, chemical balance, this reaction will not happen. This is just one example. And I think the most important critique is here the word homochiral. The ace, so amino acids in homochiral form. Um, would it be okay if I describe what homochirality is? I think, yeah, I think Kim, it's because important. I think this. I, I th I think that's important, and I think it's important to just explain why you're talking about these things, because I think they're, they're the fundamental building blocks of the model of evolution, right? So that's why you're you're looking at these 
aspect. Correct, correct. <clears throat> and uh, that's what um, biologists always say. They say um, these are um, the building blocks of life. Okay, that's what they say. Here we have found amino acids and these are the building blocks of life. That's what they say. But they are not the building blocks of life. They are um, the, the basics, the, the base building blocks of proteins. This is still far, far away from from what we would call life. So, but this ha all has to do with homochirality. In my opinion, this is uh, the most important aspect here. Um, yeah, but what is homochirality? So the exact spatial shape of a vital molecule is of decisive importance for the functionality of biological systems. And every molecule has a mirror image, just like um, your left hand and your right hand. So they are looking quite similar, but they are different. So we have a mirror image. And one also speaks of enantiomers. So the building blocks of our organic chemistry, these are sugars, amino acids, lipids, and so on. They only occur in nature in one single mirror image form. So only one form is useful in a certain organism or for a certain function, and the other one is not. And this is called homochirality. So a mixture, a mixture of both enantiomers is called a racemate, and racemates are bio biologically without any function. So you really have to have only this one form. And from a statistical point of view, the emergence of both enantiomers is exactly equal. So there is no natural explanation for how nature could choose only one homochiral variant and this is an unsolved problem. Is there anything about this in our biology textbooks? No, absolutely not. You won't find it. Instead, for 70 years, they have only ever shown the Yuri Miller experiment. Yeah. And I think Yuri Miller experiment was in 1952, as far as I remember, where they simulated the primordial soup and primordial atmosphere. And then amino acids were suddenly created. And that's where biologists come and say, hey, we have found the building blocks of life. That's what they call it. But every single Yuri Miller experiment um, in the world has only ever produced racemates. So not a single homochiral amino acid has ever been produced. Only useless mixtures of the two enantiomers are ever formed. And this information can't be found in any biology book. But why? And I'm pretty sure most of our biology teachers do not know this. And I can tell you why it is not in our biology books, because they, and I'm talking about scientists, they want to prevent our children from asking critical questions and perhaps questioning all of this. I think this is the true answer to, to this question. And I just want to show there are a lot of examples. This, this is just one example, a very important one. But there are a lot of aspects in our science, especially in biology, especially in abiogenesis, that we do not know. And I think many scientists go the way of knowledge the wrong way around. Yeah. Yeah. So, so would you say, um, uh, I mean, what would you say the, the, the proper approach would be to essentially acknowledge that we don't really know, right? That would have to be the, the approach to say, well, here are these different aspects. We don't really know how life formed. 
we thought it was like this, but it's just a story. I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds like the the idea of uh, of life creating, you know, being created in the primordial soup, as we kind of everybody has this idea. Um, it's just another story. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I have said does not prove that there is some kind of an intelligent designer or a consciousness, but it only shows that there is obviously, that are, there are obvious, obviously many parts in our science which have to be questioned. This is just yeah. the, first, the first point, the starting point. Um, maybe I, I just can point out one more critique for the theory of evolution. Um, to underpin uh, the, the whole aspect mm -hmm. um, because you have asked of, of uh, evolution. And I want to say evolution does exist. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But I think it requires a distinction between micro and macro evolution. And that's uh, something that uh, biologists do not do. They only see one evolution, but I don't think that it is true. What is micro evolution? This is also called infraspecific evolution, which means evolution within species. Mm. Um, this means changes, adaptions, variations yeah, of already existing organs and body structures, anatomy um, within the respective species. And they use mutation and selection. So that's what's happening in uh, microevolution. And that is something and, we um, can see, right? That's something we can see regularly. Absolutely. Uh, and Absolutely. Humans, this is very manufacture it in, in animals. Right. And, yeah. and uh, so uh, microevolution can be verified. So you can verify this by experiments, by observations, and it is not questioned by anyone. I do not question microevolution. An example would be um, the famous Darwinian finches, which in the end still remained all finches, right? They did not become a crocodile or something like that, or bacteria that develop antibiotic resistance. But these also remain bacteria in the end. And on the other hand, there is macroevolution. And this is also referred to as transpecific evolution. And that means um, evolution beyond the species boundaries. This means the emergence of completely new forms of life with organs and structures that did not exist before. So we get qualitatively new genetic material. And uh, this is not only for the formation of new species, but above all for the formation of completely new genera, families, orders, classes, and tribes. Macroevolution can't and could neither be found in nature, nor in the fossil record or experimentally. And I think it is an expression of evolutionist wishful thinking. There are a lot of criticisms of, of macroevolution. And I think I can't possibly summarize them all here in, in, in this podcast. Mm. But if it would be okay for you, uh, Kim, I'd like to pick out one very important aspect. And it has to do with um, something um, which is called irreducible complexity. Um, I think is a very important aspect here. Yes, please. Do we have time to talk about this? Yeah, yeah, I'd like you to. Thank you. Okay, um, so the, the theory of evolution claims that all species of flora and fauna have developed very slowly over millions of years by constant small changes. Um, and this happens by mutation and selection. So small changes led to small improvements. That's the idea. 
but there are biolo biological systems that could never be explained by a successive emergence in many small individual steps. Such, such a thing is called a system with irreducible complexity. And this is a term um, that Professor Michael Behe uses. He's uh, from the United States of America. He coined this term in his New York Times bestseller, uh, Darwin's Black Box, which is really a, a great book. But um, yo, uh, uh, let's, let's talk about irreducible complexity. What, what exactly is this? This means that such a system consists of many indispensable individual components. And if only one component is not present, the whole system is completely functionless. In other words, a slow emergence, namely step by step, would not bring any advantages from an evolutionary point of view. So... Only when, when the last component is added, only then the total system gets its functionality back. So it would not be that the system would get a little bit more functionality with each single component added. No, it's not like that. It would remain completely without a function. Only when all parts are present, then the total system makes sense and starts to work. And I think this indicates that the system must have been planned from the beginning because this is a complex system. We need a plan. We need information. So we have also to talk about the origin of information here at, at this point. And there are countless examples of this in, in nature. For example, the flagella motor of bacteria or the life cycle of butterflies. And I really, I love butterflies all my life. And the caterpillars pupate and... This stage, this living being goes into almost complete cell death. I mean, there's a living being which decides I'm going to cell death. A completely new living being is created and we, we, we get a butterfly at the end. What evolutionary advantage should there be in going into cell death if one did not know that there would be a recomposition afterwards? So you have to take a look into the future somehow. You, you have to know what will happen. But evolution lives from the coincidence. But there are so many scenarios where it needs indispensably a pre-planning. Otherwise, the whole could not be explained. And lastly, I would just describe it with a um, mechanical example so that you understand what I'm talking about here. And I think a good example would be a, um, an old mechanical clock. Just think of all the countless cogwheels in there and, and the springs. If you remove just one cogwheel, the rest is without a function. Conversely, only when, when the last cogwheel is installed does the watch gain its functionality back. So what sense would it make from an evolutionary point of view if initially over millions of years all the other cogwheels were assembled completely randomly and without evolutionary advantage? Only when the last cogwheel is added, a functioning clock emerges completely by chance. I think it is much more obvious that there must be a construction plan here. And that means we have to talk about yeah, information and the origin of information. As, for example, our DNA. And when we observe current systems where you can find information or complex systems with where you have a plan, and when you trace it back to the origin, you will never, never find a material process. A material process is never the origin of a complex system with information in it. 
when you trace it back to, to the origin, you will always find a creative spirit. Or and consciousness. Not a, uh, right? not a, or consciousness or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And uh, there, there's not a, not a single example in the whole universe where a material process is the origin of a complex information system. Okay, so that's something that is also connected with intelligent design, what I have explained here right now. Because uh, sometimes people uh, say, um, okay, intelligent design is just another expression uh, for those uh, Christians who believe uh, in, in Genesis. Um, but I don't think so. You don't have to, to say that uh, when you say, okay, there's an intelligent designer, it must be God. No, there are also many other explanations for that. For example, Rupert Sheldrake um, is talking about uh, a morphogenetic field or a consciousness field. Um, mm. These could be other uh, explanations uh, for the origin of, of information. Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were talking, you know, we have this, I think it feels like the God story is just another um, kind of, uh, you know, simplified. It's a, it's a way of trying to make sense of something that is most likely much, much more complicated and somehow involves the interaction of consciousness and matter, which is something we simply don't understand yet, right? I mean, we don't understand it in ourselves fully. Um, you know, we don't fully understand how Yoma is communicating with you and how, you know, how we manifest in these bodies as a consciousness and then deactivate mm -hmm. them again. So, of course, we're going to struggle to understand how consciousness ever started to occupy matter, to use matter, to create matter, to create mm -hmm. life. It's, um, yeah. It's I think that, um, that it is a good conclusion to say that consciousness did not start. I think consciousness has always been there. And it is the starting point of the universe with, with space and time. And... Um, I don't think that consciousness is just a product of matter and um, there, there was uh, some kind of evolution and suddenly there was consciousness and suddenly consciousness arises. I think it's the other way around, that consciousness was there before everything else was there. And consciousness is the reason um, of the Big Bang, is the reason uh, for the existence of matter and all the, 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 the processes in our universe. Yeah. Yeah, I, I fully, I fully agree. It has to be like that. Um, well, okay, let's jump to something else, and which is really the the substance of your your research. Um, clearly, the mm -hmm. substance of your passion is much bigger, and it's it's really tr challenging so many uh, held assumptions and paradigms. But but the tool, one of the key tools you're using for this is the Ariams study. Uh, if you could just remind me of the acronym, it's Empirical Research. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember how it goes on. Of the yeah, Empirical Research of the Effectiveness and Authenticity of Messages from Spirit, where Spirit stands for Spiritual World. Right, it's yes. an acronym. Okay. So the key really is empirical research. Um, you've already alluded a little bit to how that, you know, what that means, and that is that is evidence. You're looking for provable bits of information that can establish that the messages are, in fact, authentic, as you say. Um, mm -hmm. 
But uh, yeah, let's let's can describe that a bit. So you had your experiences, you know, you've met your first mediums. You yourself are a research scientist, but in a different field. Um, so uh, how did you, yeah, how did you then move to creating this creating this study, and how did you design it? What's the 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 study design? <clears throat> okay, so. Um... The initiators of the study are Bettina Zuvirode and I. So we both started this study, which is by now the world's largest study on afterlife contacts by mediumships, uh, by mediumship. And we have 243 participants in the first survey, but we had to interrupt because, um, yeah, there was something like the coronavirus. So due to the pandemic situation, we had to interrupt the study. But in the last year, in uh, April 2021, we decided to continue our study. And by now, we almost have 400 participants. Our goal is to reach 500, maybe even 1,000. So this is really some kind of, of a long-time uh, study. And it is an international study. We had people from the United States, from um Germany, Austria, Switzerland, of course, from Luxembourg, Spain, France, Denmark, so from all over the world. And so, so these people are, these um, are clients, are they? These are not mediums. Right. These are, these are people that right. come and see the medium. Or right. And um, mostly these are um, mourning people who have lost uh, um, a child or have lost their husband. And they are, in most cases, they are in deep grief. We also had some persons... Um, they were just interested and they were curious, but um, almost 80% of the people said, I'm here because I'm grieving or because of my love and, or my longing. This was the main reason uh, why people came to, uh, to the medium. And another important aspect was unanswered questions, especially when the deceased one has uh, made suicide. There are a lot of open questions. This was, I think, 36% uh, of the people said, I'm here because I have questions. I want to know why, I guess. Why, why did right, that happen? Right. Is, that, is that the question? Yes, or there, there was an accident or some, someone uh, made suicide and, and uh, the parents, for example, have lost the child. Um, they want to know what exactly has happened or... Um, they had some issues maybe and suddenly the person is dead and they want to be sure um, that everything is, is good in, in, in the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the people that come okay. and see you for the study are really the kind of people that normally go and see a medium most likely, right? I, I imagine that is the most common reason people see a medium anytime is because they're in grief and they want to get some comfort or understanding or closure about the loved one. Right, right. But there were also skeptics in there. We have distinguished in several groups. So there were not only persons in there who were previously already convinced. We also had 36 skeptic persons. And I think this is very important uh, that we also ask skeptic persons. And in the end, we will see that, and this is very impressive, there is no difference between these several groups. So the persons who were previously already convinced that our consciousness survives gave the same answers than those who were rather skeptical or very skeptical. Very mm -hmm. interesting mm -hmm. uh, result that we had. And, uh, okay, but, but there, yeah. 
no, no, no research funds were available to us. So that's why um, we had to use how we could integrate the study into our normal working day. And that's why we basically used our, um, the very normal sittings that were booked with the two mediums. Now, it was not only Bettina Zuvirode, we also brought in another medium. So there were two mediums in our study. Right. And so mm -hmm. when people, so people didn't contact them to be part of a study, they just contacted them because they wanted to have a medium reading. And, right, right. And then were they then told you'll be part of the study? They were asked if they're happy to be part of the study? How did that work? Beforehand. Beforehand. Before the, before the sitting started, they were asked um, if we could send them a questionnaire. We sent um, a questionnaire three to four weeks after the sitting. The sitting is uh, um, that, that session between the client and, and the medium. This is called a sitting. And um, we didn't ask them after the sitting because then you could say, okay, uh, the medium has just uh, um, waited if the sitting was good or bad. And then yeah. they ask them, can I give you a questionnaire? It was, um, they, they were asked beforehand and they gave their okay and, and the signature. And um, yeah, then the sitting began. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, I mean, you mentioned um, uh, the, you know, how your experience with, um, Oh, was it Susanna, uh, the medium, sorry? Um, uh, uh, Bettina Zuvirode. Bettina Zuvirode. You, men you mentioned your experience. Medium. So, you mm -hmm. know, she was a good, you know, she was, a, you found her reliable and a solid, you know, medium. Um, Absolutely. And the other yeah. medium, like how did you ensure the quality uh, of, the, of the other medium? Well, both mediums know each other. And... Um, I just trusted Bettina Zuvirode, <laughs> as she said. And, and the, the second medium uh, was a student, was Bettina's student. And uh, now she uh, also works as a full-time medium. And she said to me, yeah, she's also very trustworthy and reputable. And both work um, with British spiritism, which means right. all of this is evidence-based. Okay, so it's not like they just uh, say, here is your deceased one, he loves you, no. They, they always have to give evidence. And after having uh, given evidence, then you can give other messages, just uh, something like he loves you and he is always at your side and things like that. Because people wouldn't believe in you when you uh, um, just say things like that. You also have to give them proof that the deceased one is really there. Yes. Because that's, um, that's one of the criticisms I, I sometimes hear from people, even people I think who... who you might think would know better, but that that there is that the mediums always just give generic sort of information, right? Um, mm. uh, yes. Which is not really it hasn't been my experience, and clearly it's not from what you describe um, in your study. There's very specific pieces of evidence. Yes, and that's also why we have to talk about cold reading and hot reading, which are uh, techniques or psychological techniques. Um, and many skeptics always say. Um, all of this is uh, just code reading. For example, there's something like a Barnum effect or shotgunning or the rainbow ruse. These are those effects. Maybe let's talk about rainbow ruse. This would be um, that you uh, tell the, the bereaved persons that there are, uh, you, you talk about both sides of an emotion. Okay. You say, I, I can perceive you're deceived and I can see it was really a happy person. But there were also days where he was very sad. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is rainbow ruse. You're covering uh, all just bases. imagine the situation. 
Right, right. And and a lot of people might then say, yeah, that's true. But just imagine the situation, Kim. You're, you're sitting opposite a mom and a dad who have lost their child. And you say, I perceive your child. And, oh, it's really a happy child. But I can see there were days where a child was sad. Do you really think that you can convince a mom or a dad that this message directly came from their deceased uh, child? I don't think so. Because... Um, Parents who have lost their child, they are the most critical persons of all. And that's exactly that what also Katrin Stefan says. Katrin Stefan is the fourth person in our study team. She's a psychotherapist and she has over 20 years of professional experience in dealing with mourners. And that's exactly what she says. She says there's no one more critical than a mom or a dad who has lost their child mm. because they really want to know. They want, they do not suddenly become naive or gullible you know they they are they are the most critical persons of all because they really want to know they do not want to lie to themselves and um, yeah so yeah, i think code reading is not an explanation because you really need highly specific evidence and this is what we focus upon in our study we need highly specific evidence and with code reading you can only reach a, ver a very general level of evidence or almost no evidence. Okay. So, so yes. Yeah, so so you had so people will call up. They want a sitting. Then the medium says, "Yep, we can have a sitting. Are you happy to be part of the research process?" Um, so clearly, you know, you're not blinding. Like there are there are those studies, and you mentioned it in your book. Um, I know um, the work of someone called Julie Beischel. She has everything mm -hmm. triple blinded. Um, so the medium doesn't know, you know the, the, the client doesn't know uh, the name of the medium. The medium doesn't know the name of the client. The questions get asked through an intermediary. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, all that kind of stuff. Um, people get presented with different options and have to choose which option is more appropriate. You didn't do any of that, right? In your case, people know the client, know, right. know the medium. They bring their real case there and get direct answers. Um, what, why was right. that? Why did you choose against that? Yeah, um, Our study was not feasible with blinding. I, I definitely know the work of Julie Beischel. And uh, yeah, she, she worked with blinding. But in our view, the direct contact with each other, feeling and perceiving each other is indispensable. But there's also another very important uh, reason why we didn't work with blinding. And This is due to our uh, study design. But first of all, some words to Julie Beischel. She, she recently published a study on afterlife contacts by mediumship with blinding um, as part of the BICS contest. I don't know, are you aware of the BICS contest? The Bigelow yes. Institute for yeah. Consciousness Studies. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in November, they announced the, uh, the winners and Julie Beischel won, I think, the fourth prize of this contest. And it's really a, a wonderful study. So what did she do? Um, there were... I think 58 participants in that study. And um, yeah, as you already said, the medium uh, did not see or speak to the client and the medium gave a sitting. This was transcripted and the participants had to read the transcripts and they had to pick the one out which was meant for them. So they recognize um, uh, some information, some pieces of information in it. And then they say, okay, this is my sitting because I can recognize this information. And that's what they did. And 66% have chosen the correct sitting. That were the results um, of that study. I find this is really amazing. 
And I think our study is a wonderful complement to Julie Beichel's study, but we couldn't work with uh, blinding. And there is also a, pr a problem with blinding or with blinded studies, because a blinded study does not clarify the question of authenticity. This type of evidence, like in Julie Beichel's study, is not necessarily sufficient to prove the deceased, because all the pieces of information in the transcripts are not only known to the deceased one, but also to the sitter. Now, one could speculate that this information might have been obtained through a telepathic connection between the medium and the sitter, and not between the medium and the deceased. Okay? And that's why we decided to use a different study design. And uh, our study design focuses on um, those messages transmitted, which could not be verified immediately during the sitting, just like the message uh, from Joma with the, with the oh. two number ones. So you have to go home, you have to do some research, and then you find out, okay, this is true. And now imagine the situation, in our case, 243 transcripts, and all the participants have to read the transcripts, how could they find their own uh, their own city where there is information in it that they do not know because they have to, uh, have to do some research on it afterwards? This does not work. And that is why our study is not feasible with blinding. But as I said, I think it is a wonderful complement to Julie Beichel's study where, the, where she has used uh, blinding. Mm. No, I agree. It's, it's good to take many different angles, right? Because... Um, you want to make this, uh, I guess, bring this into more mainstream science. You want to have cover different bases. Um, right, absolutely. Because I'm, I'm there, there are a lot of studies like Julie Beischer's. It's not the first study. There are a lot of studies. Uh, Gary Schwartz, for example, also on Etzel Cardenia. They also made studies with the same design. But I think in the end, there's always this critique. Hey, it, this does not prove the deceased. You, mm. you could also get these all these pieces of information with a telepathic connection to the sitter and not uh, necessarily to the deceased. And the other thing that I found kind of curious is that the results are quite inconsistent. So some of those studies, you know, 66% is quite a high rate, but uh, there's others where the rate is much lower and where it's much less compelling. And uh, it's kind of curious why there are such different results, you know, but... Um, uh, I guess there's a number of, it was quite a variety of factors, um, including the quality of the medium. Right. Yeah. I, I think this is because every sitting is always a new experiment. Okay, so, so souls are not physical quantities. They do not always function the same and souls are unique and individual, just like us as incarnated human beings here on earth. And if you, if you bring water to the boil and always have the same conditions. For example, air pressure. The thermometer will always read 100 degrees Celsius. This is a physical experiment and you can repeat this experiment. But you can't measure a human being or, or a soul in this way. You can't give a person, or, or you, can, you can give a person 10 sittings and each sitting will be different. Mm. So the medium is also just a human being and they can have a bad day, for example, and you can't say if a medium really is good or bad in general, because a medium has to be compatible somehow with the deceased. 
That is, if the soul of the medium has many similarities with the experience of the deceased, then the contact will be easier than if it is not so. For example, there are mediums who can deal very well with family issues and children, but not so well with suicides. And it is impossible to say in advance whether the medium and the deceased will be, well, how to say, if, if they are able to synchronize telepathically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's call it, they have to synchronize telepathically. And you don't know if it, this really works very well. And I think the expectations of the sitter are also very important. They, they play a, a big role because with their own energy, they can also influence the quality of a sitting. Mm. If someone is very demanding or closed off, this energy can have um, yeah, somehow a negative effect on the communication, I think. So I think there are many unpredictable factors that can influence the sitting. It's um, different than, than a physical experiment. Yeah, And that is why I think uh, there are many studies with, with inconsistent data. Mm. Um. And so for, for you, the key evidence was information that the sitter did not know before, right? They had to go away and find it or confirm it somehow. So, so how common in, in your 243 original cases, I think it was, um, how common was that? Did every case have that kind of data or what was the percentage of cases that had that kind of information that the sitter had to confirm later? Okay, I think first of all, uh, I have to say that we distinguished between two categories of evidence. And the first category is about such evidence that the sitter can immediately confirm during the sitting. That means uh, we're talking about things that the bereaved person also knows about. And the second category is those kind of messages that have to be verified afterwards. Okay, that's um, what we have distinguished. And in the first category, um, that would be the question. In the questionnaire, we, we use the questionnaire as methodology. Um, we asked, could the medium report specific events or facts that it could not possibly have known? That was the question. And there were 90% of the people who said, yes, there was, there definitely, definitely yes, there was uh, a proof um, that the medium could not possibly have known. And a further 8% said rather yes. And we um, did get the same results in every single group. That means uh, when we ask the skeptics, the 36 skeptics, there were the same results almost. It was not 90%, it was 89%. But I think this is all almost the same result. So we, there was no difference between uh, those who were previously already convinced and those who were uh, skeptical. And yeah. I've, I find this is really, really stunning because this is what skeptics always say. They say, okay, you just go to a medium when, when you believe in it. And it's absolutely obvious and clear that then they always say, yes, I have uh, received uh, wonderful messages and uh, there is proof. But the skeptics say exactly the same thing. And I think this is really quite interesting here. Ooh. Maybe I, I can share an example that you know what we are talking about here. Um, that, uh, just an example um, that the people have written in, in the questionnaire and they have described what exactly has happened. I think this might be interesting for, yeah, for the audience. Um, 
The first example comes uh, from a mother who has lost her daughter. And during the sitting, she has received a message and she has written in the comments section, um, the medium also knew that I had lost two unborn babies. That was also correct. She even saw the pets, a rabbit and a fish of the deceased. What girl has a single fish as a pet? You certainly can't just guess that. That's what she said. Or I was told the exact cause of death, namely suicide by carbon monoxide. And it is not like that the, the medium that Bettina sits opposite the client and lists all causes of death, like heart mm. attack, cancer, mm. and, and, and and number 20 is suicide by carbon monoxide. And then the client says, yes, that's right. Now I believe in it. It's not like that. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's important that the medium can really um, say the cause of death immediately. Sometimes it needs a little time because it's really very subtle. Um, and it's, these are just very subtle emotions. And then the medium um, feels, okay, maybe it's a suicide. And now I can sense, okay, that maybe was a calm. It feels like suicide by carbon monoxide because I can't breathe. Okay, that's okay. Um, but when you list 20 other causes of death, <laughs> then it's not true. Uh, oh, it, it is worthless. Of course. Or items that were placed in the coffin could be listed. Or the content of the letter that was placed in the coffin for the deceased could be reproduced. Or the medium could imitate the speech impediment of the deceased. I mean, the speech impediment, how could this work? Absolutely stunning. Yeah. And as I said, over 90% of the participants stated that they received such clear, highly specific evidence. Mm. And a further 8% said rather yes. And think, uh, yeah, one, the one results thing, on this... Yeah? I was just going to say one thing as you're talking that I think it might be worth just, just being really clear about is that the way the non-physical people, the spirits, talk to the medium isn't like we are talking right now, right? The, the, I guess that's an important thing. Like you were saying, like the medium might feel the cause of death or they, or like Yoma was holding up one and one, you know, she wasn't saying, well, I was, I used to be a horse rider and I did this competition and then I, you know, that's not how this communication works, right? I don't know if there's anything you want to say about how the communication takes place normally. Yes, it's uh, not like a phone call. No. <laughs> and sometimes clients expect uh, now say to my um, to, to my uh, decent uh, deceased person, uh, uh, what I have to say and what what is the answer. It's not like that. It's as I already said, very subtle, and um, it depends on what kind of medium you are. There are mediums that can really visualize, so that there are. Uh, symbols or um, uh, visualizations in, in their head and uh, they have to translate this symbol. For example, when they see a wall, then for them this is the symbol for that the deceased one and the brief person that they have separated. Okay, so it's not like that the medium gets a whole sentence and, can, and, and just has to speak out the sentence. It's really some kind of a translation. And um, I have already made my first steps into mediumship. And what I have perceived is um, um, emotions. So you can feel the deceased. Maybe you can feel um, what the deceased person has felt in the moment they died. For example, that they can't breathe anymore or mm. that they had pain 
uh, in their head or what they have seen um, and things like that. I don't know the English expression for, for this. Maybe you can help me. Um, it is Hellsinne, some, something with Claire. Claire, yeah, Claire. Well, um, it's a Claire audience, but it's it's all the it's Claire sentience, I think. Claire sentience. Claire sentience, right? You know, this that's the expression. It's Claire sentience, and this is how the communication works. And it depends on uh, what talents you have as a medium. Some some can hear, not physically. It's just. As, uh, something as if you would hear it in, inside of your head, inside of your mind. Um, and the same is for, uh, for um, visual, visual, visualizations. They do not really see physically and it's somehow inside of their head. Mm. Some kind of, uh, it, it could be compared um, as if you were thinking of your last uh, holiday trip. It's uh, as if you would remember something. So it is very important um, to distinguish between your own emotions, your own remembrances, and those that were brought to you by the deceased person. And mediums are very talented uh, in, in doing so. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's okay. an important point. So then, the, the, so the evidence, there is the evidence of, like, like you said, 90% of people were provided with evidence that well, information that they they felt sure that uh, there was no way the medium could have known this or guessed it. Mm -hmm. right? And then there is this other aspect, which is the information that people then have to confirm. What was the what were the numbers for yes, that? Yes, right, right. Okay, um, because all this information is not only known to the deceased but also to the sitter. Um, this was the first category. And uh, now we have to switch to the second category where we have to verify afterwards. And that is also why we waited three to four weeks before we send out the questionnaire to the people so that they had really time to reflect it. Because sometimes immediately after a sitting, people are, are very euphoric and they would tick always the best option in the questionnaire. Uh, they would tick very good, very good, very good. And that's, yes. is, that is also why we, we waited three to four weeks because we wanted them, them to reflect uh, the whole sitting so that they have enough time to think about it. But we also wanted them to give them time to do some research. Um, and now here are some results to this question. Well, only 50% of the participants have received such um, a message which has to be verified afterwards. So not everyone... Uh, not every single participant has uh, received a message with uh, uh, which has to be verified afterwards. Um, and there were 67% who said, yes, I could verify it within the first three to four weeks. And here is the same story as it was with um, the first category. It does not matter if you're have believed in it beforehand or if you're a skeptic person so we have almost the same results so um yeah 67 percent of the people said yes i have received um uh such a message and it turned out to be true and maybe i could just give you one other example because we only know one example with the two number ones this is the story of joma and uh, maybe we uh can take a look at an at another example, um, which is my favorite one. 
um, of the whole study. And this is about uh, uh, a boy who died. He was 13 years old and there was the sitting. And uh, in the sitting, he said that um, on his funeral, there was uh, my favorite teacher and he wore an orange jacket. That's the message transmitted. Okay. Oh. And the parents didn't know who the favorite teacher was. And um, the the boy's father has called me because he saw me on an interview here in Germany. And I was talking about this case. And he just called me and he said, I am the boy's father. And he really is. I have assured this. And he said to me, Oliver, I'd like to give you some more details about this case. And he said to me, on the day of the funeral, there were 500 people uh, on that funeral. And I was in some kind of a tunnel. I didn't really recognize who exactly was there. And he said, we didn't know who the favorite teacher was. So they had to ask the classmates about the favorite teacher. And as they found out who the favorite teacher was, they called the teacher and asked him, uh, what did you wear on the, uh, on the funeral? And he said, I wore an orange jacket. So <laughs> I, I find this so amazing, utterly amazing, because it's not only that here is the father and the mother, no, here are other people involved in this whole process. So there yeah. are several steps. Um, you have to ask the classmates, you have to ask the teacher. And at the end of this chain of events, you find out, hey, this is true. Okay. And we have by now 127 cases such like that. Really absolutely stunning. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's a really powerful um, evidence. And, you know, what's so interesting, as you're talking about it, um, uh, one of the things that I, I keep coming across with this is it almost doesn't matter. Like, like you know, for me, for example, and for people who are listening who who are open and who accept this, you know, they'll, they'll hear this and they think that's good evidence. But I, I can imagine there's equally a lot of people who would listen to this and think, oh, that's an interesting story. Um, but somehow, you know, it still doesn't change their conviction. It won't necessarily mean mm -hmm. that they then feel sure that they will survive death or that their loved ones have survived, um, you know, have continued after physical death. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of the, seems to be one of the paradoxes with this, this space, you know, that uh, it almost <laughs> doesn't seem to matter how good your data is. At some point, yeah. we need to experience things for ourselves. But but I don't have to convince everyone. That's not my goal. It's it's just an mm. offer. It's an offer for those people who are open to this topic, and who are in need of of such a kind uh, such kind of of a science. I don't want to be a missionary. Absolutely not. Yeah, I don't think. It's and I think there's still actually. I, I, I think, I think there's. Yeah. And I, I think there is another very important topic in our study, which is the second um, main uh, research question, and it is about consolation mm -hmm. and you know, how far he it is uh, healing. This was our second uh, um, research question. Um, and maybe I can give you some results um, about this topic. Yeah. So we asked... Important. Um, we asked people in how far this was comforting for them. 
And 82% of the people ticked very comforting. And further, 14% ticked a little comforting. And if you add it up, we have 96% of the partic participants who said that it was comforting for them. And even here, there is uh, no difference between the several groups. Uh, we had seven hardcore skeptics who said, I absolutely do not believe in this. For example, there was a man who has lost his wife. His wife was, um, uh, she, she was pretty sure that the consciousness survives. And she said to um, her husband, when I die, because she, was, she had cancer and, and she was about to die. And she said, when I am dead, please go to a medium. And he said that he absolutely had no belief in it. But because he was so much in love, he, he, just, uh, he just went to, to a medium. And he was so happy afterwards. He couldn't believe it. And he's one of those seven persons who said, I absolutely do not believe in it. And all of them, all seven participants have ticked very comforting. So there, in this group, we had 100%. They all said very comforting. So I, and I think no grief counseling or conventional medical method can even come close to providing such comfort and healing. I think this is very impressive. Um, what, what power an authentic, an authentic, um, Uh, uh, afterlife co contact can have, and when you when you just take a look at parents who have lost their child, and there there are there are there, there's nothing in the world that you can do to make them smile again. The only thing that they uh, that that they could make happy again is when their child comes back. But when you then see that they smile and there is healing when they receive such authentic messages, it's amazing. And now we have proof. So we have 96% of the people who say it's so comforting. And it is. I, I can prove this. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I think, you know, at some point maybe integrating mediumship with grief counseling would be, would be incredibly valuable. That's the best option, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think we're starting to wrap it up now. I'm curious... How, how do you see the future? Like you're, you're planning to, to at least do 500, maybe more, um, you know, as part of your study. Is there any other future right. to the study of mediumship that you see, you know, other angles that could be pursued or, or what future steps there might be yeah. for mediumship research? Yes, absolutely. I, I think it is important that more scientists go public with this so that we create some kind of a basis for our society that makes it possible to discuss spirituality without being ridiculed right away. And I also have a new project I'm planning this year, and we'll start in, in spring. We will soon start measuring brainwaves in different mediums. And Julie Baishi, Baishi, um she did, did um, similar things. And uh, Dr. Amen, he's from New York. He did it with uh, Teresa Caputo. She's also known as Long Island Medium. And uh, that's um, a study we'd like to do here uh, in Germany and in Switzerland. So we are measuring brainwaves uh, while they are giving a sitting. Occasionally, there are other experiments that show very interesting results, namely that uh, the very low frequency Delta waves increase significantly. 
Delta waves are usually present in deep trance, but not in waking consciousness. If a code reader, for example, gives a fake sitting, then he certainly has no increase of the delta waves in his brain, but rather an increased attention with analytical thinking. And this would mean that there should be predominantly better waves or even higher vibrational waves in his oh. brain. So that's what my next project will be about. Mm, that sounds super mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, I think Oliver, we might leave it at that. I I, I was going to say just your your original interview on YouTube that I think is where I first saw you. You were telling me before we started recording, you've now hit a million views um, in German talking about mediumship, which I think is really remarkable. Um, and I guess final thoughts: Why do you think there's been this interest in your work? Yeah, why is there this interest? I think because I combine my personal story with Joma with science. I'm not just a scientist. I think when you just present scientific data, there is no heart in it, you know. But when I can when I can present my own story and I can show them here is my spiritual awakening, this is what I have experienced. And I was a skeptic i was a natural scientist and now i am open so everybody knows this must have been impressive what i have experienced and there must be some truth in it and i think this is the reason for why people are interested in it um yeah because there are there is um also my heart in it in, in the whole story and i think there is some kind of a paradigm shift in our society it's not only that uh, the, the natural sciences are the only source of reality. I think a lot of people um, yeah, wake up and they somehow know deep on the inside that there is more. So I think this is really very important that more and more scientists are open to this topic. Yeah, I really, really agree. And um you speak with a lot of heart. I think that really comes across that you're bringing this, you know, not just your, your strong analytic mind, but your passion and your, your care for people. So I really appreciate your work and I, I thank you for coming and speaking to me about it. Thank you very much, Kim. It was a pleasure. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it? The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, 
or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies. Thank you.